Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Welcome to the First Cut Podcast. I'm Rick Gaiman, and this is the way too early preview for the majors and the big events of the 2020 season. I'd argue it's never too early to get into this. So let's assemble the team and welcome back in post-holidays, Kyle Porter. Hello, sir. Good morning. How was the holiday break for you? Uh, it was great. It was like the one week of the year where the, there was probably there was probably an official event that Sun JM participated in, but <laughs> of course he did. I did not cover it. Uh, so yeah, it was a good time off. I'm fired up and ready to go for 2020. I'm stoked as well. I'm sure he won whatever event he was playing, whether it was for <laughs> Nichols at his local club. That guy was out there grinding. And we'd also like to welcome in uh, for the first time, Greg Ducharme. First, welcome, Greg. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here joining you guys. I've been listening to to this podcast a little bit in the past couple of months, and you guys do a great job. It's a real pleasure to be a part of the team here. Well, we're thrilled to have you on, and um, why don't you? T- we usually hear you on Sirius, right? Why don't you give us a little background on where people are are hearing those uh, lovely vocal cords that they must uh, remember? Oh yeah, well, it's something that I, a guy like me has got to work on a little bit. But uh, you, you can hear me uh, every Monday through Friday. I'm on. Uh, Sirius XM, as you said, PGA Tour Radio with Michael Breed. I, I co-host A New Breed of Golf with him. And we, we talk about a lot of the same stuff you guys talk about. I mean, we're covering the, the highlights of the game. We're covering uh, all the major headlines. And it, it's a, a conversational show very much like this one. And, I mean, it's just it's two guys talking golf. And we talk golf all day and when we when we get there in the morning and we're preparing for the show it's two guys talking golf during the show it's two guys talking golf and then when we get done guess what we do we continue to take <laughs> golf and oftentimes when we get home at night we're on the phone with each other talking about some of these stories so um so so this fits right into my wheelhouse here uh, and and uh, again I'm I'm very excited to be a part of it Love it. Well, we're excited to. Uh, we're going to hop right into this. We're going to go through each one of the majors and the players, maybe the Ryder Cup, just some of the big events for this year, kind of talk about uh, what we expect out of each of them. But I think one of the larger storylines out of 2020, Kyle, is going to be the second year of this new schedule where we've got the players being moved up to March and how golfers are now going to change their schedule in terms of playing. And there's just big events all year round. So I'm currently loving it, Kyle. I love this new schedule. It feels like every single week we've got a big event, but we've seen it once now. I'm interested to see how you think it's going to pan out for year number two. Yeah, I think the interesting part about that is that it I don't know if it sneaks up on you, but we're we're really coming up on, you know, the Hawaii swing and then you get into the farmers and you're like, it's almost like the, not the middle of the season, but it's almost like the, you're, you're getting into the condensed portion of it. It feels so much more. And I know it's, it's not actually based on the calendar, but it feels so much more condensed to where you get into February and March and you're like, this is, this is like the stuff, like this is like the, the meat of the season. So I don't, um, I, I'm with you. I love it because I think condensed seasons are better. I know players, 
maybe don't love it just because the majors are, you know, they don't have time to maybe recuperate or rest as much or whatever. But as a content consumer and producer, I think it's fantastic. Yeah, it is great for those clicks. Um, Greg, it's, it's a situation where I think Kyle was kind of alluding to this, where someone like a Tiger Woods, who for two decades has been, uh, so meticulous about his schedule and making sure that he gets enough rest. And a lot of these guys are similar to that. It's kind of hard to find rest in this new schedule. If you want to play all the, uh, all the big events, you throw in the WGCs, you throw in the Memorial this year, they throw in the Olympics. Like there's just so much going on this year. And I'm really interested to see how these golfers are going to kind of create their schedule and how their bodies are going to react to all of this. I think in the second year in a row now, we've, we've had this for a full year and, and that condensed schedule that we talked about so much last year, this year it, it's going to normalize in my opinion. I, I think if you look at a guy like Tiger Woods at the end of 2018, he played eight of nine weeks and then he went into the match and then he went kind of basically to the hero world challenge. And then you're right into, as you alluded to earlier, Kyle, right into the meat of the schedule. And there was a little bit less time. I think this year, since it's the second year in a row, I think it will normalize for players a little bit more. And, um, and, and as you also said, it's not really condensed when you look at the calendar. So all that basically happened was the PGA championship moved from August, which was kind of the end. And that, and that got shifted into May. And, and so therefore the uh, FedEx cup playoffs got shifted into August and early September. So, the schedule basically just got shifted. And I think for the first year, there was a shortened off season because of that. And now I think it's going to um, normalize a little bit more. And I think we're going to see players uh, adjust. I think we're going to see them find their routines and their schedules. I think we're going to see them find out what will work for them. Uh, and, and with Tiger Woods particularly, I don't really think he's going to have much of a problem taking time off in between majors as he did last year. I, I My hope is – he can remain healthy, and, and he's a guy that knows his body better than anybody. We saw it at the President's Cup. He takes Saturday off because he's just not feeling great. He, he knows when he's able to go and when he's not. I think when he's ready to go, he's going to be uh, ready and, and willing to go as well. Yeah, one of the things I thought and I think we're already seeing in this early, you know, fall portion of the of the schedule is that we're seeing guys play in the fall when they might not have normally played in, in seasons past because I think what they found last year was they were sitting there in July, August, you know, had started their 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 schedules at Tory or in Hawaii and they're sitting around looking going, "Oh my gosh, all of these FedEx Cup points have already been allocated. I better start playing and and make sure I can get myself to East Lake. It appears this year, Kyle, that a lot of these guys are making an appearance already in the fall, trying to bank some of those FedEx Cup points because it is really going to allow you the flexibility to design your schedule the way you want for the actual 2020 season. Yeah, everybody except for Ricky Fowler, apparently. Who apparently, yeah, I've seen one time since I was. You know, at Rory said this at the Tournament of Champions last year, and he kind of got made fun of because you know why does Rory care about the FedEx Cup, but I think in a, in a, he, he was sort of representing a broader player view in that, like, he, I, I can't remember the verbiage he used, but he basically said, I'm sick of showing up at the Honda and being like 90th in the FedEx Cup. And he was talking a little bit about, um, like the difference between his European tour schedule and then his PGA tour schedule. But I think the same concept applies to, I don't know, everybody, but like the top, it, it, it sort of even applies to like the top five or ten guys as well. And, and I think 
I don't know. Maybe that's a mental state. Like they just, they don't want to see themselves 79th or 101st or whatever. Uh, but you do, you definitely see guys picking their one, two, maybe three spots in the fall, trying to play well and then packing it in for, for January in Hawaii. Yeah, I, I agree. And Rory can get away with that, right? Rory can get away with being 90th in points when he makes his debut or whenever he gets the Honda or something like that. A lot of these guys, uh, not necessarily at that advantage, but Rory's a really good segue. So let's jump into this. Uh, the players, which is, uh, March, Rory is going to defend his title there. Um, only six guys have won the players multiple times. So Rory could add his name to this list, Greg. And what we saw last year, which was interesting about TPC Sawgrass is because we're back in March, because it's a, you know, a little bit colder, uh, uh, the course plays just a little bit different, a little bit longer. Do you think this is going to start to turn into one of these just, you know, bombers paradises? I mean, generally one of the studs wins here at the players outside of, I don't know, a Siwoo Kim winning it at 21 years old. Usually it's a pretty big, uh, name that comes out of this field. Well, I, I look at the um, the players with a little bit of a different. I think it's kind of a, anybody who who's playing really well can win. I don't necessarily think it's a bomber's paradise for a number of reasons. And if if you look at the history of the players, there has been a, a period of time where it was played in March. In fact, from 1982 to 2006, it was played in March. It, it was only from 2007 to 2018 was it played in May. So you know. The the March spot in the schedule is kind of a more common place for the event to be played, and when you when you look at past champions here, you do see big names, and I think part of the reason these names are big names is because of a Players' Championship. But I still see names like KJ Choi and Tim Clark and Sergio Garcia. These these are players with different styles. Then you see Jason Day and Siwoo Kim, as you mentioned, and, and Webb Simpson and Rory McIlroy. So it's difficult to figure out who is going to win the Players' Championship. In my opinion, it's one of the hardest, probably of the events we're going to talk about today, the second hardest event to handicap. And I'm interested to get your thoughts on, on why you think it's so difficult to handicap because, I mean, again, as I, as I look through this, I don't see a commonality. I don't see a common style of winners at the Players' Championship. Part of the reason, in, in my opinion, is it's a positional golf course off the tee. There, there's a spot where you need to get your ball to have an angle to a, a hole, and it's not necessarily about the distance. What do you guys think? Yeah, I, I think that's a good point, and I think that it is – I think it's kind of an underrated course. I went there for the first time like three or four years ago, and you're right about having to be in the right the right spot off the tee. And so some of that – but then – I don't know, like the board, the leaderboard last year is insane because it goes Rory and then Furick. So that's like a couple of Walmarts between them. <laughs> and then Eddie Pepperell, Johnny Vegas. Wal- hold on, hold on. A couple of Walmarts. <laughs> yeah, it's at least two Walmarts. <laughs> How many yeah. Walmarts exactly is it? It's like a, a, it's like a super center. I don't know if it's, a, it's, <laughs> it's like the big, the big Walmart. And so then it, then it goes, it goes Eddie Pepperell, Johnny Vegas, okay, DJ, who missed like nine four-footers on Sunday. Uh, Snedeker is up there. And then Fleetwood, Hideki, Rose, Brian Harmon hits it like 265. And then Jason Day, Adam Scott, and uh, uh, Joel Dahman, Abraham Answer, John Rahm. I mean, it's just like what's the through line? There isn't one, you know, and, and I agree with Greg in that like, I think it's probably the hardest tournament to pick. I, I don't. I, I presume you're alluding to the PGA Championship being up there as well. But just in terms of 
year to year. I mean, even if you look at year over year winners, the difference between Webb and Rory, they can they play completely different games. And I think it's so difficult, which also makes it a ton of fun. They're, um, they're, I agree. It is a ton of fun. And, and just to say, it's not the PGA championship I'm talking about here. It's actually the open championship. Okay. And okay. For me, that's, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later on in the show, but that, that's a, a weather thing for me. It, the draw is so important in that tournament. I think when you're it's sitting in December, it's really hard to predict who's going to play well uh, in, in July at the open. The, there is a, uh, a field strength number that comes out of our buddies from from data golf and the players championship uh historically ranks as one of the most difficult fields uh on tour every year which i know it's it's no surprise to us who who look at the field compositions but you know a lot of people assume it's it's the masters or it's the pga championship obviously the masters has a lot of uh you know uh, past winners that kind of clog up the bottom there and it's just this is a much more difficult uh deep field which i think is why when you when you you see that there's a bunch of big names that have won it. It's because there's a lot of big names in this event, right? It's, yeah. it's just like everyone here is supposed to be here. They've earned their way in, and it takes a really great week amongst all of your best peers to kind of cap it off. So um, I won't make you uh, hold on to these, but I'll just kind of read you through the odds here early on, and, and I won't make you make an official pick, you know, three or four months out. But Rory is the betting favorite. He's 10 to 1. John Rahm at 13 to 1. Justin Thomas and Tiger at 14. And Brooks Kepka all the way down at 18 to 1. Uh, I'm sure, Kyle, he does not like that disrespect not being the favorite at every single big event. Well, hopefully he'll be eating this time around. Um, for <laughs> is, for the, is the body shoot coming around again? Well, that's what it was last year. Remember, he was like, oh, that was so weird. Um, you know, for me, it's it's uh, and this will be no surprise to you, and and you'll probably be in on this, but I think JT is is the guy here for me. He's played really well here. He had that. He finished like fourth his first year, and and he's played. He's played well a couple other times. Webb, I think, is interesting here. Webb is uh, 40, I think, 40 to 1, I saw. Yep. And then the two names that kind of popped when I was looking at some sleepers uh, were Ben On at 80 and, and Sungjae at 50. Uh, you know, obviously we talk about those guys a ton, but they're just they're just guys that if you look through that the top 10 I just read earlier, it's so many great ball strikers between Rose and Hideki and DJ and Fleetwood. And it's just, it's just the putting thing. Like if they have a hot week, they'll, they'll be great. And I don't know, 80 to one for Ben on and 50 to one for Sungjae were, were both really interesting to me. And what I think is interesting from those guys is once they win and win something big, you're never going to get those odds on them again. So you might as well uh, take your 50, take your 80 to one now and uh, see if you can cash it. Greg, do you have an early lean or some guys that you're honing in on uh, a handful of months out here at the players? I do. Right now, when I look at it, my my big name that I'm really interested in is Patrick Cantlay. I, I think mm. Patrick Cantlay this year at the President's Cup showed us a little bit of a different side to, of, of himself. And I I think you look at a game, again, this is an unpredictable golf course, right? We don't know what we're going to get. We don't really know who's going to win. There's no through line, as you said, Kyle. And and when I look at a tournament like that, I'm looking for a guy that's well-rounded. And Patrick Cantlay, from a statistical perspective, is as well-rounded as they come. I mean, he's inside the top 26 last year in every major strokes game category. 26 was putting. That was his worst statistic. So he's got a great short game. He's a great ball striker. He's a long hitter. I think he's a smart player. 
and and so I look at a Patrick Cantlay, and I think this is a year where he's going to really shine. I'm not sure he's ready to win a major championship yet, although he he will probably be a, a pick. Um, in many of them as the year goes on. But I think a player's championship is a place where Patrick Cantlay can really succeed. And and he, he missed the cut last year for his first time, 2018 and 2017. He, he was tied 23rd and tied 22nd, respectively. And he's kind of had, if you look at these tournaments, in all three of them, he's had one round that hasn't gone his way. He had, in 2017, a 77 in the final round. In 2018, he had a 74 in the third round. And last year, he opened with a 75. I, I think he's a guy that's going to figure it out one of these times. I think he's going to put four rounds together and could give you a victory. Uh, the long shot that I had in mind, and this is an interesting one. His name has not been mentioned yet. It, it, uh, it's Kevin Na. Kevin mm. Na is a player to me that is so streaky with the putter. I almost see him like a Webb Simpson in the sense that he can get really hot and just kind of run away with it. You, you look at what Kevin Na has done throughout his career, and basically... He, his first win was in 2011, and then he didn't win again until 2018 at the Greenbrier. And since, he's won uh, – well, he now has four PGA Tour wins. He won the Charles Schwab Challenge, and uh, he, he won the Shriners here in 2019. So uh, I look at him as a player who's kind of getting hot. He's starting to get comfortable in the moment. He's starting to believe that he can win. And I think on a golf course like this where any style can go, a putter like Kevin Na is a guy – I mean, that's a good pick, and you're going to get great odds on a Kevin Na. I, I think the the Cantlay J, uh so you you went Cantlay I went JT I think statistically they're so similar like they, JT doesn't absolutely JT doesn't have any holes Cantlay doesn't have any holes and, and and so maybe they're not the first guy you think of when you think of um you know strokes gained off the tee or short game or whatever but there's no holes and so you start looking around and I think that's I, I, maybe, maybe that's the through line, right? At the players is, is no holes. You know, Rory last year was, was awesome with his putter. And so when he's doing that, there are no holes. And, uh, so I don't know. Maybe, maybe that is just specifically for that week with that deep of a field on that course, you just can't have any holes, uh, around that place. Certainly for that week. I mean, maybe there's a hole in a Webb Simpson's going to have a couple of holes in his year long statistics, but, but the week that he won, he didn't have any, any holes. So it's a guy that's going to be playing really well, clicking on all cylinders in every part of the game. That's a great point, Kyle. Speaking of clicking on all cylinders, uh, he, he did it last year. I'm just going to say this statement and tell me how cool this sounds, Greg. Uh, Tiger Woods is going to be the defending champion at the Masters. Oh, it's so cool. <laughs> I mean, you, you can't, it is, it's the coolest thing in the world. And looking at it right now, who's to say he's not the best player in the world? His game is absolutely clicking on all cylinders. And when I look at, at the, the totality of the major championship season, I think this is definitely one of the best spots for him to win again. There are a couple of factors that come into play for me. One, the weather. It's going to be probably the, maybe Wingfoot in, in uh, the U.S. Open in June will be as warm, but I think uh, Augusta National for the uh, for the Masters will be probably the warmest one. And that all that does is it just gives him a little bit better of a chance to be healthy. It, it gives his back a little bit better of a chance to not stiffen up quite as much. So I, I think you have the best chance that Tom's going to be feeling really good for the Masters. And, and then from that point, 
couple of things about Tiger's game that work so well here. One, he is, in my opinion, the thing that separates Tiger from all the other great talented ball strikers that we've seen throughout the years. Tiger is a tactician and his wits around the golf course are second to none. And, and I really think when you combine it in, in like Tiger in 2000, it's the, the longest hitter, the best iron player, the best short game, the best putting and the smartest. You combine all those things together and he's impossible to beat. And you take that wit, that, that ability to tack the golf course at Augusta National. It's, it's the most important thing. And, Combine that with his iron play. Combine that with the fact that he's probably the best lag putter on the PGA Tour. I, I think if Tiger goes into that week feeling healthy, um, I, I think he's going to have a really good chance to win because I don't think you're going to see penalty shots out of him, and I don't think you're going to really see him three-putt very much. You know, Kyle, I try to uh, come up with an argument there that Tiger Woods is not the best player in the world at the moment. Uh, <laughs> but considering the fact that he's now won, what, three times in the last 18 months, he looked like the best player on either team at the President's Cup. Um, I, I don't know, man. Like, he, he is legit uh, back at it. He, he's he's uh, in play to win every single time he tees it up. And what we know about Augusta is the more you play it, uh, the more you know it, um, it's, it's so much more advantageous for you, right? Knowing the subtleties of the greens and, um, you never seem to get a flat lie anywhere around there. Uh, he's going to be in play and guys that have, uh, won here before have had success here before. They're always going to be in play at Augusta. Yeah, you know, a couple things on this. So I, I did a I did a podcast last week. I was a guest on No Line Up, and we were talking about like if you had to take one guy for 2020, like who would you take? And so it's kind of a Rory Brooks debate. But the other name that got thrown in was was Tiger, like in a in a legitimate way. And I think I think the only thing right now with Tiger is I like I think you can have a real conversation about is he the best player in the world, but the the holdup the the part that gives me pause is like can I trust him for two months or six months or twelve months just in terms of the the body the injuries everything you know that goes along with that um so yeah and then the other thing with Augustus I was reading uh, Justin Ray did a really good statistical review of 2019 for the 15th club and he was looking back at the 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 guys that have led the field in strokes gained approach. Uh, the last five years have finished first, first, second, third, first. Mm. And so last year that was Tiger. The year before that, that was Patrick Reed. And so if you look at strokes and approach guys, uh, on the PGA Tour, the, the names that stuck out in the top 12 or 13 last year, I think Hendrick, Hendrick Stenson was first, then JT was second. And JT is somebody that I picked to win the Masters last year. Obviously he didn't, um, but, I don't know, man. Like he just, it just feels like that's a place that he can kind of take down at some point. And then you got Brooks, Rory and Hideki who, who seems to always play well there. So I think that's one thing to kind of keep in mind when we're thinking about Augusta. It's, it's funny you mentioned, um, kind of drafting guys for this upcoming season. I did a season long draft for the, the DraftKings YouTube channel and I had the third pick and we were required to have, uh, one rookie and one guy over 42. And mm. I took, I took Tiger in that spot because yeah. I figured, uh, you know, I, I probably could have argued to take him third, fourth or fifth overall anyway, but the gap between him and like every other guy who's over 42 years old was so massive. I was like, he's got to be the guy I take. Who, who would it be? Would, is Stenson? Like, uh, he... Stenson was up there. Um, I think by the time there was like eight of us. So I think by the time we got down to the bottom, I like Stricker was taken somewhere. There, there's not that many. 
many guys. Uh, like Justin Rose isn't 42 yet. Like it's it's a pretty small group of uh, of guys like Phil Mickelson. So I figured like Tiger is head and shoulders above uh, the rest of those guys. Yeah, and I, I yeah totally. And I think the I think the honestly like I think if you had to talk about a like a top three regardless of age, it would be Brooks, Rory, and then you have an argument about. I, I, I mean, it, for you and I, it'd probably JT, like, would, yeah. would be thrown in there, but I think you could make a real case about, about Tiger. I mean, John Rahm is, is certainly up there, but, uh, it, it's a really interesting debate and the fact that we're talking about it as Tiger, you know, is playing at this age, it, it's just, it's, it, it's never not astonishing whenever I think about it. Yeah. Now, Greg, this is not on the outline, so we're going off script here. Um, this, I, what obviously I love so much about the Masters is the fact that it doesn't rotate, right? The fact that we get Augusta every single year, you, you get the, the shots replayed every year, Phil from behind the tree, Tiger chipping in where the ball just hangs on the lip, right? Like we get to see that year in, year out. It just builds the allure. Do you think other majors should like not rotate as as they do every single year even if there is like an eight or ten year rota like do you think that um some of these events would be better off if we just continue to build the history at one specific course it's a fascinating question and and there are so many levels that go into this first of all you're right we know all the holes at augusta national we know what it is we know the place like we've all been there before even if we haven't been there before because we've seen it so much so every hole one through 18 is a hole that we know and and a, a golf fan can pick out hey, that's the 14th hole at Augusta. It has no bunkers. So you can give a trivia question on any of the holes out there. So that definitely is a, a, a huge factor. And we've actually had this discussion before because a problem that the USGA has faced over the years, they, they face many problems with their golf course selection and also the way that they're set up. Um, and, and there's this other kind of debate that gets thrown in here, and it's the distance debate. Are, are these classic U.S. Open golf courses that were in the quote-unquote U.S. Open Rota, like places like Marion, are, are those out the window? Can we no, no longer play there? And part of the part of that discussion is in order to host a major championship, a PGA Tour event of, of any level, but especially a major championship, you need a tremendous amount of property. And when I look at the U.S. Open and the PGA uh, the PGA Championship, I think it'd be a great idea to buy a huge piece of property, a place like a Bethpage Black or a place like the the uh, place in Texas that the PGA has bought, and they're building golf courses there. And I think it'd be great to have a U.S. Open, a USGA facility where they have maybe it's five golf courses. And, and not that the U.S. Open will be played on all of them, but you, you have a place where they know all year long they're preparing for the U.S. Open. They know exactly what kind of grass they have. They know exactly what kind of limits they can push. They know the weather patterns. They know what the golf course is likely to play like. I, I do think there are a lot of benefits beyond the fact that we know it. The one concern to that is uh, Augusta National is our favorite golf course, not just because we know it and we see it every year. It's also just one of the greatest pieces of property on the planet. And and if you've ever been there, it's a place you dream about. I mean, it can nearly bring you to tears just stepping on the property. There aren't a lot of places in the world like that, whether or not they have a golf course on it. So I think there's a challenge in that, hey, if if we're the USGA and we're going to go to some, we're, we're going to buy a piece of property and build these great golf courses on it, is it going to develop that same allure? How much time does that take? Is it something, do you really want to give up a, a place like Wingfoot or Pebble Beach to do that? It, there are a lot of questions that go into it, but I do not think it's a bad idea at all. 
I, I kind of, that's a pretty interesting idea I never considered is, yeah, just develop your own site and, and make it whatever, make it whatever you want out of it. That's pretty awesome. Um, so Kyle, I'll, I'll throw this little trivia question to you here. Uh, the career grand slam. Five guys have done it. Jack Nicholas, Tiger Woods, Gary Player, Ben Hogan, Gene Sarazen. Three guys could do it this year, depending on where they win. Do you know who those three guys are? It's, oh gosh, I should. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, Spieth at the PGA, it's Spieth. Rory at the Masters, and Phil at the US Open. And Bango Bongo, nailed it. You know, the other one that's interesting is, uh, so Kepka needs the Masters and, I guess there's a lot of guys with two, but he needs the Masters and the Open, the open Championship. And so, you know, we were going to have a situation where if he, oh, what was it? I, I, if he had won the Masters last year, then we would have, Somebody going for the slam every major, essentially. I guess unless Phil doesn't qualify for the US Open, but every every major for the next however many years, which would be a really cool subplot. I guess I mean that'd be true if he wins the Masters in in 2020 because the Open comes after that. Right. Um. So yeah, that that to me is um. I mean, I we could do like three hours on Rory and the Master and winning the slam at the Masters, but. Uh, that to me is, how about this? I was thinking about this. I was studying the PGA championship leaderboard from last year. Jordan Spieth came, came within, like, he finished third at the PGA and hit, like, him winning the slam did not even get talked about. And I understand why, because he couldn't find the center of the club face for like, you know, four straight days, basically. I have no idea how he finished third. Right. But that was a really interesting kind of subplot that just, I mean, I don't know that anybody even said anything about it during that week. Well, I just feel like it's probably because, I mean, Brooks ran away with this thing, right? He shoots a 63. Uh, he's your, he's your first round leader. He backs it up with a 65, which was the yeah. second best round on the course. I mean, he ends up winning this thing by only two over DJ, but six over the next group of guys, which is Spieth, Cantlay, Matt Wallace. So, uh, yeah, it might have just been a, a little anticlimactic that Brooks was kind of running away with this thing. But you're right. For, for someone t- like to be that close to being the sixth guy in the history of the sport to do something, you thought we would hear a little bit more about it. Yeah, totally. And he, uh, to your point, he was seven down after the second. Spieth was seven down. <laughs> Playing with Kepka after the second day, and then he was nine down going into the final round. So it, it was, I mean, yes, he finished T3 with Cantlay on the, on, and Matt Wallace on the board, but it wasn't, it wasn't really that close. Yeah. Uh, all right, good segue into the PGA Championship. So we're getting Harding Park this year, Greg. The first PGA Championship held in the Western United States since 1998. Uh, we have seen it a couple of times. 2009 President's Cup. We're going to get it here for the PGA Championship. And then we're also going to get it in the 2025 President's Cup. So this is a course that we are going to be seeing much more over the course of the next handful of years. So it, it absolutely it has sort of a, a famous history and, and there it hosted a lot of events in the San Francisco area, high quality events. And there was kind of a downfall. They had a little bit their conditions started to get away from them and their practice facilities started to kind of they, they weren't really up to the standard. And it got to a low point. Actually, you mentioned 1998 in 1998. The. Harding Park was used as a parking lot for the U.S. Open at Olympics. So I it, saw that. That's yeah, so it's kind good. of an that's interesting so comeback. <laughs> I mean, that's not that long ago. It, it, I guess it is. But so anyway, in 2005, they come back for the uh, for the first time to host the um, the WGC American Express Championship. And guess who won there? Uh, well, Tiger Woods did. And then you mentioned the 2009 Presidents Cup. Um, well. 
Tiger Woods went five and zero, oh. and, and um, so I think Tiger knows the golf course well. I think it suits him well. I think Tiger would be a great pick at Harding Park. I think of the four majors we're going to see this year, I would put Harding Park as the the second best chance for Tiger to win a major. And the only thing that makes it second best is I. I worry about the weather. It looks like it's always at this time of year, it's going to be kind of low sixties, high fifties. And it just ups the chances that Tiger's not feeling great. And if Tiger wins the masters again, is he going to kind of shut it down the way that he did last year? I don't want to say shut it down. It just, it seemed like there was a, a less of an energy coming from Tiger Woods. He wasn't as hungry after winning the, the masters for the major season remaining. So I have some, there, there are parts of me that are really high on Tiger at Harding Park. There are parts of me that kind of I have to wait and see a little bit. Um, but there are some other players that really stand out to me, and they're big names. There's, there's no surprise this year. Rory McIlroy won the match play there, and I think it was 2015. And I believe John Ron played really well in that event as well. So I, I think those are two other players that you got to keep your eye on. It, it, this should be an interesting one out in San Francisco. I'm, I'm excited to see this turn. Yeah, Kyle, it's funny when Greg mentions it, it's like, oh, who won that event? Tiger. Who did this? Tiger. Who yeah. won the match play? It's like all lo- all roads around here always lead back to Tiger or Rory. Yeah. And even with the PGA, I, it's unbelievable. As deep as it is, Rom, DJ, Brooks, it's just like these guys really are doing something historic. I mean, Rory's, uh, I believe it was his season last year, the best non-Tiger strokes gained year ever. Like these guys are really kind of uh alone in their own little tier, I think. Yeah, they are. And I'm always, (laughs) every time Rory doesn't win a PGA, I'm shocked by it. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if that's the right way to view it, but it's just so easy to envision him winning the types of, of tournaments that are set up by the PGA of America, and especially at a place like Harding Park where he's had a ton of success before. It's just, it's almost too straightforward, I guess. Um, but, I think if you look a little bit deeper, I'm gonna, I, the guy that actually stood out to me was, was Greg's guy from the players, and that's Patrick Cantlay. So he finished T3rd with Speeth last year. Uh, he's th- like 32 or 33 to 1 to win at Harding Park. Um, I, I just, that just seems way, like, it, it seems like it should be more like 20 or, it, it seems like there's a lot of value there for somebody who's a top eight player in the world, who's had success at PGAs before. And maybe you're just, maybe you're getting the value because his name is not, it doesn't, it doesn't, um, it's not a household name like a JT or, or, or somebody like that. But if you're asking me, like, who's got a better shot at winning the PGA, uh, Cantley or Ricky Fowler or Jordan Spieth, or, I mean, it's not even close for me. It's Cantley. Like, he is, he's a phenomenal player. And so for him to be 32, 33, uh, at, a, at an event where he's had success, um, I, I just, I don't know. That'd be a good play for me right now. That's interesting. The one guy that I kind of had uh, earmarked is Gary Woodland. Uh, Gary Woodland actually lost in that final in 2015 yeah. to to Rory, and he's a completely different player now than he was in 2015. He's he's a much better player. He's 50 to one at a place that um, you know he's obviously had success in, and we've seen him get to the top of the mountain, right? Like when you get to the top of the mountain and you get to raise a major championship trophy. Uh, you know, your career's different now, right? I mean, of course he's, he, he can be nervous. He can be whatever, but it's like, hey, he knows he can do it. So Gary Woodland, uh, who was the 50th seed at that WGC, uh, match play back in 2015 is someone that interests me, uh, quite a bit as well. Um, all right. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, we've got the, 
U.S. Open. We've got the Open Championship and a little bit on the Ryder Cup. But before we do that, let's take a word from our partners. Jeremy Renner returns to Paramount Plus for a brand new season of the original hit series, Mayor of Kingstown. My job is to create a balance. Avoid a war. From executive producer Taylor Sheridan, co-creator of Yellowstone. There's some new players in town, and they brought the flag. And Antoine Fuqua, director of Training Day. I know it's always been a war zone, Mike, but this is the next level. The mayor is back in business. Are you warning me? You're going to find out. Mayor of Kingstown. New season streaming June 2nd, exclusively on Paramount+. And welcome back. Uh, I just mentioned him at the end of the last segment, uh, talking about Gary Woodland and his prospects for the upcoming PGA Championship. Greg, he's going to be defending uh, his U.S. Open title this summer at Winged Foot. And uh, not only am I excited to get back to Winged Foot, but super impressed. Uh, you know, they have now that we're in kind of the, the, the holiday season, they replay all of the uh, major rounds and, and final rounds on the Golf Channel. And I was watching Gary Woodland and just I was so impressed by his performance at the U.S. Open last year. I'm, I'm excited to see how Winged Foot stacks up as, as one of these U.S. Open courses. Well, so uh, this is I'm extremely excited for this major championship for a couple of reasons. One, Wingfoot's right in my backyard, and I happen to have two of my college roommates are their assistant pros over there. So I I play Wingfoot more than I play my home course, it, it, and <laughs> it is and that's a that is a true blessing. It's my favorite golf course that I've had a chance to play, and there are so many things about this golf course that make it perfect for a U.S. Open. It, it's very interesting in a couple of different um, in in a couple of different different arenas. So I, I'm going to get back into Gary Woodland here, but just when I look at Wingfoot, there are a couple things that you'll notice on TV. One, the rough's going to be really long. Two, the fairways are going to be narrow. Three, the greens are really fast and really slopey. Um, but if you look a little bit deeper, there is definitely, in my opinion, a draw bias off the tee. There are a number of of um, tee shots that I, I want to say it's nine on my count I, in my opinion it's nine of 14 tee shots favor a draw over a fade and five of those actually their dog legs left with a camber to the right it's something that that you'll hear talked about when when they go to an olympic club in san francisco but it's something that comes into play very much at winged foot you look at a hole like the fifth hole and the fifth hole is a, a par five that'll be played as a par four in this event and it's a dogleg left up the hill, and the fairway cants to the right-hand side. And, it, and when it gets firm and fast, it's going to be difficult for a player who fades the ball to find that fairway. And this makes this tournament this year so interesting to me. Many of the heavy hitters we've been talking about, like Brooks Kepka, like Gary Woodland, like Tiger Woods, these are players who tend to hit fades. It seems to be this movement on the PGA Tour where the the bombers are hitting fades. There's only one guy that comes to my mind who still kind of is is working to draw in there for the most part. So I'm I'm looking at this thing saying guys that fade it like a like a Brooks Kepka and a Tiger Woods, they may have a little bit of a hard time at Wingfoot because the other thing is it, it's a long enough golf course where missing a fairway will turn into a half shot penalty. And then, and it could turn into more. You will see some big numbers at, at this event, more so than we did last year at Pebble Beach. I, I think you look at the green complexes after we look at the tee shots and the greens are incredible. Well, they're brilliant, first of all. So I'll, I'll give A.W. Tillinghast a ton of credit and Gil Hans, who came in and did a little bit of work on, on the golf course. It, the greens are brilliant and they, I would say 17 of the 18 greens are fair, but in, extremely challenging. 
screen. I, I think when you start to look at um, at the first screen, it's going to be a real challenge. I think they're going to be a little limited in, in the whole locations they can offer. But hitting that first fairway is going to be critical because you are going to see some things with the golf ball on the first hole, where on the first green, where the ball is rolling around places you can't even imagine. It's fast, it's slopey, and the flat, quote-unquote, flat spots are very small. So uh, I, I think right from the get-go, you're going to have to get off to a really good ball striking start, and you're going to have to play from the fairway. That's going to favor a guy who who has the ability and likes to move it a little bit right to left, in my opinion. So the guys that I'm looking at for this tournament, I, I look at uh, Arori as having a chance. I, I have a little bit of question on on his putting. We'll see how he does on the greens. I think Rory's going to have a great chance at Wingsfoot. And the other guy that comes to my mind is Xander Shoffley. Um, Xander has an ability to move the ball right to left. Uh, he doesn't curve it a lot, but he can definitely he can definitely curve it that way. He's a wonderful iron player. Another one of those players who has you know not a lot of holes in his game. Um, but the thing that I really like about Xander's game is his short game. And he's 20, uh, last year he was 27th in proximity to the hole from the sand and 14th in scrambling from the rough. And I think those are two statistical areas that are going to be really important at Wingfoot. That's awesome insight, Greg. And, and challenging, I believe, to be the word of the week, Kyle. It was, uh, it's, we haven't seen Wingfoot since 2006. Jeff Ogilvie, uh, raises the trophy on Sunday evening, winning at five over par. There were seven, seven total rounds under par for the week. It was kind Love of it. a, kind of a bloodbath. Um, I have so many good stats for you, so I'll, I'll throw a couple at you, and then I want to I want to hear your thoughts on you. You said you love a, a you know an event that ends at five over par being the winning score. This is the first event uh, that Tiger missed, or the first major, excuse me, that Tiger missed the cut at uh, basically since he turned professional. He made thirty eight straight cuts heading into the two thousand and six U.S. Open. He missed the cut. He then. Uh, his next three majors he played after that, he won all three. So maybe just a little miscut to, uh, you know, <laughs> to, to light a fire under him. But, uh, yeah, this is the U.S. Open. Uh, I think we like it difficult. Do we like it five over as the winning score difficult? Uh, well, first of all, I, <laughs> I can confirm the stuff that Greg uh, said about Wingfoot. It is, uh, it's a special place. And the first green, I think I like six putted the first green. <laughs> It's so hard. It's so difficult. But I like the guy I keep coming back to here, like when I think about this, that it's so easy to envision this guy playing well and winning is Justin Thomas. And I think you, I think some of the stuff I love the Xander uh, pick by the or the, the like throwing Xander out there. I think that's a really good one. The thing like I keep going back to to no holes with JT's game and I and, and Wingfoot is just. It's a place where if you have a hole, whatever it is, it's it's going to be exposed, and it's going to be exposed very quickly, whether that's approach shots, whether that's around the green. And, and JT is somebody where when it's clicking, it, it clicks in every single category. And, you know, I think the thing with JT, I'm, I'm looking at his, his U.S. Open finishes. And so he goes, uh, as a pro, he goes T32, T9, that was at Aaron Hills, T25, and then miscut at Pebble. So, you know, I, I want to see him get punched in the mouth a little bit at a, at a U.S. Open and then respond. Because I think sometimes 
it's a momentum thing with him where when he gets it going in the right direction, remember BMW last year, you're like, well, this, he's going to win by like 50. Like it's, <laughs> this thing's over. Um, I think it was at yeah. BMW and yeah, they, they just replayed that round too. He was like six shots clear. Like, yeah. you know, yeah. And so I want to see him get like punched in the mouth without his stuff second round and, and shoot like a 72 instead of a 75 to stay in it. Cause I think that's, I think that's the next. That's one of the final steps for me in terms of like being an elite golfer at major championships. So I don't know. Maybe that needs to happen before he wins the U.S. Open. But, man, I, I just think that Wingfoot and him would be a, a pretty good marriage. And one one thing on that, I, I really like the Justin Thomas pick. The thing that gives me concern is he likes to move the ball. Uh, he likes to fade the ball a little bit. And yeah. I, I think that can create a couple of problems off the tee. But the thing that I really like about JT's game is his wedge play. When you get inside of 100 yards, it, it, he is probably, if I'm building a golfer, I think Justin Thomas's wedge play in that range is the guy that I choose um, in, in kind of that 75 to 50-yard range. And I think from everybody in the field, no matter how accurate you are off the tee, I think they're going to be faced with a lot of third shots on par fours in that range. JT's one of the best at it. So I, I think he certainly has every everything you need uh, to win at Wingfoot. Well, and and I think it, I think when you have a place that's that difficult, whether it plays that difficult in that week, leaving yourself, you know, 30 foot two putts that are that are simple instead of going after pins, it he's able to do that because he's so, I mean, he's second on the PGA Tour in strokes gained approach. That that means he's like hitting it where he exactly where he wants in yeah. in any given week. And so to be able to do that is such an advantage and I think the second component of that is just being mature enough to know when to do that. And I don't know if you could have said that about like 22 year old JT, but I think he's matured to the point where he he's, he's smart enough and wise enough to know uh, when to make bogey and when to go for a pin or, or when to not go for a pin. And, and I, and I think that that, I think that more than anything will uh, show up in his game over the next four or five years. Is he your favorite player on the PGA tour? No, no, it's Rory. Okay, because JT's yeah. name has come up a lot. I'm getting a sense that that you really like this guy. No, I, yeah, I mean I like him a lot. Um, I think that he, I, Rory's the one that is just enamoring. I think though, like he's he's the one where it's when it's flowing, it's like this is this is a uh, this, this is an experience. I, I do. Yeah. I think JT is great. Though. I think JT is uh, kind of underrated by people within golf. I think he's. I think he is what I think he. Here's the thing. I think he could be what everybody thought Spieth was going to be. And we we never have talked about JT in that sense. And it kind of clicked for me, I don't know, maybe last year, maybe this year, where it's like, wait a second, is JT the guy for like on the US side in team events and, and at majors that we that we kind of talked about Spieth being? Like that that's the thing for me with JT. I'm uh I think I'm the JT lover here so maybe maybe I'm bleeding into uh Kyle's brain a little bit but we do we do bring him <laughs> up, we do bring him up quite a bit uh yeah he's he's awesome but scrolling through this you know 2006 leaderboard is kind of hilarious you know Phil Phil completed his annual tradition of finishing finishing second at a US Open uh Tim Heron made $15,000 uh at 25 over par because he was able to survive the cup and then the wheels kind of fell off. Like, it's just really incredible to, to scroll through. Uh, but I digress. We'll, we'll jump over to the, the open championship here. Uh, the 149th edition, which, you know, golf has uh, all the great traditions. 
uh, you know, the, the Masters, we look and say, oh my gosh, it's been around forever. The 149th Open Championship. It's incredible. Royal St. George's, which is in Kent, England, not to be confused with St. George's, which will be hosting the RBC Canadian this year. Not confusing at all. Uh, Greg, this is the 15th time we're going to see the Open Championship happen. Royal St. George's, it's fourth all time. St. Andrews will uh, notch its 30th uh, hosting next year for the 150th edition. This is a, a course we know a lot about. It has a lot of history, and I'm excited to get back here. Again, I, I, as I mentioned earlier when we were talking about the players, I think this is the hardest of all the tournaments to handicap. I, I think when you look at kind of the way scores go in the Open Championship, not just at Royal St. George's, but anywhere in, in the Open Rota, you can get – Days where it's really hard to break par, and you can get days where if you don't shoot 65, you're falling behind. So it, it is a very challenging tournament to handicap because part of it is the, the draw is extremely important. And when we get really close, I mean, we have to get really close to this tournament, I think, to make an accurate assessment of who has a, a great chance. Because you could have a, a morning tea time on Thursday where the weather is just terrible, and you play your way out of it in one day. In the afternoon – uh, in, on Thursday is fine, and then Friday morning is fine too. And, and so it's almost like the morning guys and the afternoon guys are playing two totally different golf courses. Once that kind of settles out and we get into the weekend, it gets a little bit more easy to to handle. But for that reason, I, I just find it so difficult to handicap because the first two days, you don't, you just don't know what you're going to get. Now, that being said, um, this is – the, the golf course has been basically it's played fairly difficult at, at least relative to par. Greg Norman was the only player to exceed 500 par in 1993. I want to say he was 13 under, um, and and he won by two shots over Nick Faldo and Bernard Langer was right there with him. So I mean you definitely have had some big names. You've had a Ben Curtis and a Darren Clark win here as well, which are a little bit of long shots, and I think that speaks to the unpredictability of the golf course. But again. We have talked about this a couple of times when you're when you're handicapping an event like this this far in advance. It's nice for me to look at a guy who has no holes. We've said that a couple times already throughout the show. And the guy that sticks out to me, the guy that I can envision holding the Claret Jug here, the guy that I think by this time will be ready to win a major championship is John Rahm. I think his game is just incredibly strong. I think there's some really interesting parallels with John Rahm and Seve Ballesteros. He's kind of chasing uh, chasing Seve's records and, and kind of, it, it means a lot to John Rahm. It, it's something that really moves him emotionally. And I think you're going to see him uh, enter this tournament playing really well. I think he's going to be in really good form. And I think he's a guy that is a, uh, a safe pick, but definitely a guy I can see holding the Claret Jug this year. It, it feels like John Rahm is just ready to explode, right? I mean, he wins back to back starts uh, at the end of the 2019 year, almost uh, tacks on a third in a row. I, I mean, he's just been unreal. And it's, it's this trajectory that he's on that feels like 2020 could be a massive year for him. Kyle, 2011 was the last time we saw the Open Championship at Royal St. George's. Well, uh, Greg had mentioned it. Darren Clark comes away with the victory, finishing second that week, both Dustin Johnson and Phil Mickelson, DJ to me is a pretty interesting guy because whether it was just the, you know, he still had a pretty good year, but I mean, last year was kind of a down year for, for DJ and he had the, the knee, uh, the knee issue and he kind of missed a lot of golf towards the end of the year, didn't play all that well. Um, 
I'm I'm looking forward to what his 2020 is going to be. I think he's now uh, becoming more valuable in betting markets. I think a lot of the public is kind of forgetting about him, and he's still DJ. Yeah, he, it is weird because he didn't have any top tens after the PGA when he uh, almost ran down uh, Kepka, and so I, I don't. I don't know. He's such a he can be such an enigma because he's won so many times on the PGA Tour, and then. You know, we always go back to like the only time he won a major is when he didn't know what the score was. <laughs> and yeah. so it's like, well, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what to do with all that. I do definitely agree with you about there being more value with him when it comes to betting just because I, I don't, he's not getting lost, but I just feel like we don't, we're not talking about him like we were whenever he won three in a row going into the, the 17 master or I think it was 17 whenever he, uh, fell down the stairs or whatever happened there. Um, like he was like the, the guy and we're not, we're just not talking about him in those terms. Uh, real quick on Rom. I agree. Uh, he wins all over the world. So he wins at LaHinch. He wins at Torrey. He wins in Dubai. I mean, he just like, he'd go to Mars and host a tournament. He'd win the tournament. You know, I, I, I think that that stuff matters. And yet, I think interestingly, the only major where he doesn't have a top ten yet is the Open Championship. Um, so, but I, I I do like that pick. I, I think, you know, for me, you look at this course, and I I, I was looking this up a couple of years ago when Spieth won Bergdale, and Bergdale is a place where you're like, okay, I can't remember the name. Palmer won there. Um, it, it, it was basically like a who's who list of major winners. And then you look at Royal St. George's, and in the modern era, it's, and you guys said most of these names, Bill Rogers in 1981, Sandy Lyle, Norman, Ben Curtis, Darren Clark. And it just, it does, it feels like it's going to be, like, that list makes me feel like the 2020 Open Championship is going to be ludicrous. Like, just <laughs> names that were like, what is, what is happening? Like when Paul Dunn was in the final pairing a couple of years ago at, at St. Andrews, uh, I I I think Greg is right. Like it's such a hard tournament to handicap. One name that kind of stood out to me when I was going through some sleepers is uh, Kevin Kisner. Um, he's like one fifty. He's one fifty, I think, right now. He, you would think that he play he would play well at, at uh, U.S. Opens, but he's actually had a lot more success at Open Championships and. Uh, I don't know. I mean, who knows about form? It's eight months away or whatever. But to me, he's a guy who's just, he's so precise. He's so um, disciplined. He's just, I don't know. It, it, it's a tournament that if he gets the right weather, uh, he could go out and win the thing. Here's something I think is interesting. Um you know, the PGA Championship, uh, which would we say Brooks, you know, Brooks won by two over DJ, but he was six shots clear of the rest of the field. Uh, Gary Woodland wins the U.S. Open by three shots. Shane Lowry, your defending champion at the Open Championship, he kind of runs away with it. Greg, from a viewing aspect, I kind of go back and forth on this, and maybe it depends on the guy. Um, obviously, I'd love every it, it, i'd love every major and every event to come down to the last shot guys have to hit a, a clean tee shot on 18 or whatever it is but i feel like if you get the right guy if you get a brooks who runs away from the field if you get a tiger who runs away with the field that is almost better for the viewing experience because it kind of creates like these these dynasties or like this guy that everyone's now got to go chase down and imagine what the rest of the season's going to be like i'm just kind of interested in your take when you're watching a a major and you know Shane Lowry or someone like that is is six shots clear. 
Well, it, it's a great point, and you brought up a couple of these names. I think it's actually less. I think if Brooks Kepka is running away with it, I think people turn it off, and I think that was kind of proven that the PGA Championship didn't get great review. It didn't get great ratings this past year. That's part of the reason why. But if it's a player like, and there's probably two or three players in the game, one of them's not even realistic to consider. To consider. But if Tiger Woods is winning in a blowout, we want to watch because we're admiring greatness. It's the greatest thing we've ever seen, and we can't take our eyes off of it. You think back to Pebble Beach in 2000. It was you. You had to see it. You couldn't miss it, even though he was winning by 15 shots. But then you go to uh, the U.S. Open in 2014 at um, at Pinehurst and Martin Keimer's winning by, I think he won by eight or something crazy like that. And and that's not something we're very interested in. We don't necessarily want to see Martin Keimer win by eight shots. It, Rory McIlroy wins by eight on two different occasions, and we need to see that because it's, yeah. it, it's mesmerizing to watch. But there there are only, I think the other guy that we would watch in a blowout is Phil Mickelson. And as I said, I don't think that's even a realistic thing to talk about. So there, there are very certain players, a very, very rare class of players that we want to watch in a, we want to watch them play golf, whether they're in a tournament or whether they're just at their home course playing with friends. I mean, I, I've had a friend of mine tell me once that he'd watch Tiger Woods go grocery shopping. So <laughs> Tiger, we're going to watch if he's, if he's playing. It doesn't matter what he's playing for. We're watching. Rory's the same way, but there are not many guys like that. So, um, you know, Gary Woodland, is that Pebble Beach winning? I think that does really well for him. It, it, it helps because it's Pebble Beach. So there are a lot of factors that come into it. But, again, I think there's really two guys on the PGA Tour that, that we're willing to watch in a runaway. Yeah, I love it. All right, let's put a bow on this uh, with the Ryder Cup. It's, uh, you know, Kyle, we just spent every day of the week talking about the President's Cup for however long, and we've got another team event coming up. So uh, 2020 is going to be held at uh, Whistling Straits, uh, which presumably uh, is going to be a much better venue uh, for the United States to kind of steal that, steal the cup back from Europe. I can't wait. I, I am, uh, I'm looking forward to this more than maybe anything this year. I freaking love the Ryder Cup. It's the best event. It's the best, it's the best event I've ever been to. And, you know, I think you look at, uh, it's, it, there's, there's so many different storylines and especially coming off some of the U.S. stuff in Australia with Patrick Reed and like just everything that went on. It's like, Look, like, do I think the U.S. is going to win in 2020 at Whistling Straits? Yes, they should win. They have probably more talent depending on who's injured and who's able to play. They're going to be at a course that they can set up the way they want it. It's not going to be, you know, like, like Paris. Um, but I don't know, man, like the European side at plus 150 with the, the kind of galvanizing spirit they have in that room. I, I just think it, I, I don't know. I think that stuff matters, and I think I think the President's Cup was a reminder of that, that the U.S. – I'm not saying it's always like this, but I think they have a tendency to be more a group of 12 individuals, and in team play, that stuff just – I don't know. You can't statistically prove that it matters, but it does matter, and – the the guy that I go back to with the European stuff is, you know, like Rory's the guy, right? He's the, he's the soul of that team, and you hear a lot of these U.S guys like tiger and everybody they're like oh well you know in an alternate shot it matters like what what ball and like the the you know like what branded it and all this stuff and it's like rory never talks about that crap because it <laughs> does because you know what it doesn't matter and i think those guys on the european side follow his lead 
and they're just so galvanized for that week. I, I'm, I can't wait to see how, uh, it plays out, uh, in, in 2020 at Whistling Straits. It's going to be awesome. So I, I, I tend to really agree with you. Like I, I would almost take whichever side is plus 150, whichever side it's getting, getting the, the plus yeah. odds on it, because it's like, we just saw this at the President's Cup. We just saw the international squad, Greg, put a pretty big scare into the United States for three days or whatever it was. And, uh, now you get to, you know, anything can happen in, in not only match play, not only alternate shot, but in team events, anything can happen. And then, um, you know, I'm even more excited because as, as amazing as the President's Cup was, which I think we all it was it well exceeded my expectations. I'll speak for myself. Now you remove like Joaquin Neiman and Adam Hadwin and add Rory and Rom. Like, like it's just like it's like the President's Cup on steroids. Like I I can't wait for this either. It's going to be so exciting to see. And I'm glad you guys are such fans because this is I, I think throughout this year as we talk about this, I think this is going to be a topic where we get some some real emotion coming out. We get some yeah. uh, some heated opinions coming out. And I have a host of opinions about the Ryder Cup and I have some real concerns. Uh, yes, the Americans are probably going to be favored again. That's a concern of mine. Because I think when you take a Justin Rose, a John Rahm, and a Rory McIlroy and make them underdogs, give them a little chip on their shoulder, nobody thinks we can win, watch out. I mean, those guys are world beaters out there, especially when they get into the Ryder Cup. So I I have a lot of concerns. Another concern that I have, and this is an ongoing concern that I've had for a very long time with the way that the Americans handle the President's Cup is, first of all, we select golf courses way out in advance. I mean, we know, just looking at the site now, we know where the 2036 Ryder Cup is going to be held. We know where 2032, we know them all in between. So, and when I look at these golf courses, I see one thing in common, and it's that they all host major championships. You have Whistling Straits, Beth Page Black, Hazel Team National, the Olympic Club, finally Congressional. Now, what does that mean? Well, to me, it means that you take away the home course advantage for the Americans. I know that uh, mo- most of the Europeans play the PGA Tour and they play a lot of the same courses anyway, but you don't know who's going to be on your team in 2032 or 2036. And so I look I look at Whistling Straits and I think, well, it doesn't necessarily benefit the American side. It could benefit the European side just as well. We, they, they all played it in, in the uh, most recent major 2015 PGA Championship as well. Most of them did. So I, I don't see a real advantage there, where Whereas you look to what the Europeans do with their course selections, and they typically will select courses that they play on the European Tour. What does that mean? Well, the Americans never play the European Tour courses. They don't go play the French Open at Le Golf National. They are not going to go play the Italian Open at Marco Simone. I don't know if it's there this year, but it's been there in the past, and there are some Europeans that have played it. So I think that we have a, a way of doing things that's a little bit different than the Europeans. And um, and I don't think that we take all the advantages that we can and that we need to. And, um, again, we look at our World Golf Rankings. We look at our positioning in the FedEx Cup standings. And I think we're going to say, hey, when the Ryder Cup comes around, the Americans at home are favored. Uh, I have deep concerns about the Americans holding on to one at Whistling Straits. I actually thought you were uh, exaggerating when you said, we know the course out to 2036, and then I Googled it, and no, there it is, Congressional yeah. in Bethesda 2036. We'll have a, we'll have to do another show on who's actually going to be on that team. We, they're probably <laughs> all uh, in diapers at the moment, so we don't know who they are, but um, beautiful, really compelling stuff. So 
All right, boys, um, that'll do it uh, for this episode of The First Cut. I would like to thank Kyle Porter. You can follow him on Twitter. It's at KylePorterCBS. And Greg Ducharme, thank you, Greg. You can follow him on Twitter at TheRealGFD. I'm Rick Gaiman. We'll talk to you next time.